If you have a Bible with you, please open to the 10th chapter of Luke. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 37. Again, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. So we're going to look today at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, This is one of the few accounts that's only found in Luke's Gospel. And just by way of kind of context, orienting you to the Gospel of Luke and why this is such a prevalent passage, uh, Luke typically in his Gospel focuses on the outcasts of society, the, the downtrodden, those who are sick and ill. And so it's no wonder that he adds this as part of Jesus' parable in Luke's greater context of demonstrating uh, that God's love is not just for a particular group, but it's for all people without distinction. And so again, Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, let me pray and we will read God's word together. Heavenly Father, your word is good. Your word is truth. It is a lamp among our path that we walk, though we walk in darkness, it shines and leads us to everlasting life. Lord, now give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to humbly obey your gospel. Awake our spirits. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear now the words of the one and only living and true God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, that is Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell on robbers who stripped him, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. 
And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with this passage. There's a lot of uh, wonderful examples of people who exhibit the qualities of a good Samaritan. And one that I would like to um, talk about to illustrate this point uh, is a a soldier in the American army uh, during World War II. He served uh, in the Pacific Front. Uh, And his name was Desmond Doss. Uh, Desmond Doss was a devout Christian man. And he was a medic. He wanted to help people. He wanted to uh, revive them if they were injured. And he refused to carry a weapon into combat. Now, I'm not going to go into the details and the ethics of whether or not that's right, but... What's important is he was convicted uh, of loving his neighbor as himself. And so when he went to training in the army, he was ostracized. He was outcast by his fellow soldiers. Uh, At night, they would beat him. Uh, They would throw their boots at him. Uh, And on many occasions, they threatened to kill him. Now, this was a fellow soldier that they threatened to kill. They even went so far to say that if he was left on the battlefield, they wouldn't go to help him because of his convictions. Uh, Now, he was even uh, almost uh, discharged from the military by his commanding officers for his conviction. But he was a godly man. He, He knew the scriptures, he loved the scriptures, and he loved his neighbor as himself. One of the uh, most famous events occurred in April uh, 29 of 1945. Uh, Desmond Doss's unit went to Okinawa, and they were to take this ridge, uh, which was known as Hacksaw Ridge. So they had to climb up with nets and ropes to get to the top. When they got there, they came under severe enemy gunfire, mortars, artillery barrages, everything. And so many of Desmond Doss's fellow service members suffered injuries throughout this three weeks atop this hill. Now Desmond Doss himself, as a medic, as a Christian man, as one who loved his brothers in arms, even though they did not love him and would have left him for dead, over the course of these three weeks saved uh, about 75 men total, bringing them back to safety. And he himself was critically injured uh, during this running back and forth behind enemy lines, going through Japanese tunnel systems just to save his brothers in arms. And he was eventually awarded the highest medal you can be given in the military, which is the Medal of Honor. And what's interesting is he didn't boast in himself when he received this. This is what he said. He said, I feel I received the Congressional Medal of Honor 
because I kept the golden rule that we read in Matthew 7, 12. All things whatsoever you would do to men, so also you should do to them. Desmond Doss knew who his neighbor was. And so in a bit of a contrast here in the text, we have these scribes, these lawyers, these uh, religiously trained, theologically literate people asking a very simple question that they should have known the answer to. And even the text, the, the point of the lawyer, his motive was to put Jesus to the test. It wasn't to understand the law better. It wasn't to know God better. It was to put Christ, the God-man, to the test. And so what I would like to impress upon you this morning is this, that we in fact cannot love our neighbors by ourselves, but apart from Christ, in Christ, we can love our neighbors. When we are in Christ, we can love our neighbors. We're going to look at this three ways this morning. First, we're going to look at the lawyer's pride, verses 25 through 32. Secondly, the Samaritan's compassion, and 33 through 35. And finally, the perfect love of Christ in us, in verses 36 through 37. Apart from Christ, you cannot love your neighbor. Let's look again at verses 25 through 32. This lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus calmly, winsomely says, What is written in the law? How do you see this written? Now, this is very typical of the religious leaders during Jesus' ministry. They would often delimit the law, drop it down to a manly standard to achieve, and they also tried to put Jesus to this test, this great rabbi, this teacher, by asking him a simple question, what should I do in my own job, my own works, to inherit eternal life? Now, we have this lawyer, and we're not really given much uh, understanding in the text of, of who he is and what they did. So uh, the lawyers back then were professionally trained teachers, and they expounded upon the Mosaic Law. Uh, they had a lot of traditions uh, incorporated into the Mosaic Law. But all of their life, everything that they did was governed by the Law of Moses, both written and and oral traditions that were passed down. And these lawyers would also wear what is known as a phylactery. It's this tiny little box about the size of a walnut that they would wear, and they would have the law of God written inside of there, and they would fasten it to their forehead or to their wrist. So you can imagine this lawyer with this phylactery coming up to Jesus with the law written on his head, quite literally, asking him about the law. Now listen to Jesus' response. We have the God-man. Jesus Christ is God, the Lord, the King of kings. 
He simply says, what is written in the law? How, how do you read it? Jesus' answer is to turn to the scriptures, to force this lawyer to turn to the scriptures. And he answers correctly. Nothing in what he says is wrong. You shall indeed love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, your entire being, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus even answers, you've said that correctly. That that is the right answer. Good job, lawyer. You have answered the right question. You know what you're talking about. And now comes the difficult part. That apart from the Spirit of God, we can't simply do something to inherit eternal life. It's odd that Jesus is saying this. It makes it seem at first glance that, oh, perhaps I can inherit eternal life. Maybe I can, in fact, do this. Paul himself even writes in Galatians That if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Meaning, if you could achieve the law, then you could inherit eternal life. It's quite simple. If you can do all the works, then you can inherit eternal life. But we know that we have erred, we have sinned, we have fallen short in thought, word, and deed daily. So it's impossible to inherit or work ourselves into eternal life. And Jesus tells him, just do this and you'll live. Do it and you will inherit eternal life. And then we're told here in the passage, this lawyer, this theologically trained uh, student of the law, tries to justify himself in asking a very simple question. Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? I'm pretty sure, I think he's thinking to himself, I'm pretty sure if I can figure out who my neighbor is, it's probably my other lawyer friends, it's the other students I went to seminary with, it's people in the temple that I worship with. I'm sure if those are my neighbors, I can easily love them as well. That's not who a neighbor is. Uh, Jesus was not pointing to some type of uh, geographical proximity of who a neighbor is. He wasn't saying the person that you live next to is necessarily your neighbor. Uh, The person you're sharing a seat with is not necessarily a neighbor. The lawyer was in fact asking the wrong question. Again, he was placing the law of God at a lower standard so that he could either easily jump over that hurdle. The lower we bring God's law, the easier it is for us, by our own works, by our own deeds, to achieve it. If I make my neighbor someone I love, then I can love my neighbor, because I naturally love them. If I can make them a best friend, then I can love them. But that's not who a neighbor is. Now, Moses... This is, this is the, the irony in the story. Moses specifically tells us who a neighbor is in Leviticus 19. A neighbor isn't merely who we are next to or close to. Now this lawyer 
with the word written on his head and on his wrists, who was well-trained, should have known this in Leviticus. This is what Moses, the great prophet, writes. He says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, when a neighbor dwells with you in your land, you shall do him no harm. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The Jews should have known better, since they themselves were aliens in a strange land, since they were sojourners in a strange land in the wilderness. And similarly, we ourselves are strangers. We're alienated from God apart from the work of Christ. Now, what is the nature of this man who was beaten along this path? The first is that the text tells us that he fell among. So this word can mean both to uh, actually fall among them, to happen upon them. But it can also mean that he has been stricken by them. So it's a dual sense in which he was both fell among them, he came into contact with them, and fell among their judgment, their beatings, their bruisings. So also he was stripped, he was taken of all that he possessed, all his garments. And this idea, this word for stripped, only occurs in the Gospels with direct reference to when Jesus was stripped of his own garments in being crucified on the cross. It's just like the evil farmers in Matthew 21, who they see the son, the the inheritor of the king's goods and properties, and they beat him and strip him of all that he has. So also, this man is being stripped and beaten. And the term for being beaten isn't just he received some blows and could get back up. This idea is that he received a final, definitive blow that intended to kill him. And so when you look at this passage, when you see just this little bit of the passage, when this man is beaten along this road, what would you expect reading this? You would expect that surely somebody would come by and help this man. Surely somebody would see that he had fallen down and pick him back up. Just two days ago, we were at a park uh, walking down this hill, uh, and this adorable uh, little girl was riding her bicycle down the hill, and she took a turn to fast way down uh, in front of us, and she crashed her bike. And what was incredible were these two teenage boys who didn't know her rushed up, picked up her bike, picked her up, and brought her back to her grandfather. That's kind of the expectation that we have when we see somebody who has been beaten along the road. But we're given these two men, these two religious elites, these two individuals who were trained at the best seminary in Jerusalem. And the first type of man was a priest. And this priest was walking down the road, and he didn't just happen upon this man, but he saw him from a distance. And what does he do? Crosses on the other side of the road. Again, this priest, like the lawyer, would have known the word of God if he truly knew God in the ultimate sense. 
The priests were supposed to be mediators between God and man. He would have seen this man, should have seen this man, and picked him up and helped him and assisted him. But what does he do? He walks on the other side of the road. He leaves him to die. This half-dead man, he leaves to the side to die. And we have a second man who walks down the road. A Levite, we're told. And he wasn't part of the royal priesthood, but he would have been one of the attendants of the temple. He would have taken care of all of the temple worship. He would have been inundated with temple worship. He would have known as well the word of God. But what does he do? Does the same thing. Walks on the other side of the road. And if I can contextualize this just just a bit for our own understanding, we're a bit removed from Levites and priests in Israel. But we could say that in this parable, an elder of the church walks down the road, sees a man beaten at the side, left for dead, and an elder who was given a particular office to support the church, to support the needy, walks on the other side of the road. So also a deacon, like the Levite, who provides mercy ministries for the people, sees the same man and walks on the other side of the road. It's not only their hearts, but it's our hearts too that need change. Again, apart from Christ, you cannot know God. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself. So I'd ask you when you're walking around uh, the downtown area of your city, or even here in Stuttgart, whichever major city uh, you belong to, there are so many different types of people from different nationalities, different backgrounds, uh, different religious convictions. What do you see in that person? Do you see an image bearer of God? Or do you see someone who's different and doesn't act like you and therefore doesn't deserve mercy, doesn't deserve compassion, doesn't deserve love? Jesus is telling us, here is the law. Do it and you shall live. On the highest of high standards, do this. But apart from Christ, we cannot do it. Apart from God's spirit, we are unable, we are incapable of doing God's law. Jesus also paints this picture in Matthew chapter 25, verse 33 through 46. I'm going to read it for you. I think it's very important regarding this text. He says, And he that is God will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, 
or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you? And when did we see you as a sick person or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, those like the Levites and the priests who walked on the other side of the road, depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. And they will answer him saying the same thing. Lord, when did we see you like this? Again, Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Apart from Christ, you cannot love your neighbor. We looked at this first of the lawyer's pride. Secondly, we'll look at the Samaritan's compassion in verses 33 through 35. Let me read it again just to refresh our minds. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, that is the man who was injured. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. There is a stark, drastic difference between these two people groups. We have the religious elite, the elders of Israel, the ones who claim to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. And then we have a Samaritan show up. Now I'm going to take a little time to explain the importance of Jesus using a Samaritan in the story. Now the Jews and the Samaritans had a mutual hatred for one another. If you remember from the Old Testament, the kingdom, uh, the United Kingdom was divided, the United Kingdom of Israel, not the United Kingdom northwest of us. It was divided after Solomon's death uh, due to his own foolish son, Rehoboam. And then we had the ten tribes of Israel separated from the southern portion of Israel. And in 722 BC, when this happened, Samaria fell into the hands of the Assyrians. And many of their citizens were exiled and dispersed throughout all of the Assyrian army. And what happened, what was common practice in military conquest back then, was to take your own people and interbreed with the people you have conquered to kind of breed out the religion, to get rid of their uh, religious system, their background, their culture. And so they wanted to make them more like Assyria. And so what happened, this intermarriage, which was forbidden in God's law, 
uh, happened between the Samaritans and the Assyrians. They became uh, as rebels and half-breeds to the southern kingdom of Judea. And so when the Jews returned from their exile from Babylon, the Samaritans at first wanted to participate in the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. But their offer of assistance was rejected. And so what happened is the Samaritans became uh, tried to impede the building of the temple for Israel. And indeed, they actually built their own temple in the land of Samaria. So this hostility between the Jews and between the Samaritans was enormous. It was unparalleled to anything we have now. Often, Jewish leaders, if they had to travel through Samaria to get from point A to point B, they would in fact travel around Samaria just to get to where they needed, even if it meant an extra few days or weeks of walking. This is how much the animosity was between them two. The Jews persecuted the Samaritans. But what did the Samaritan do that the priests and Levites didn't? It's not just the work that he did, but he took to heart the law of God. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Samaritan took compassion. He didn't hold a grudge. He didn't hold vengeance. He didn't say, because I'm not a Jew, I will not help you. He instead goes and looks at this other presumptuous Jew that could have been injured and patches him up. He cures him and cares for him far beyond what is required. It would have been sufficient for him to take him to the end and drop him off for someone to take care of him. But what does he do? He uses his own resources, bandages, oil, which was a high commodity. It's very expensive to get these items. And the Samaritan man was journeying himself. He could have been injured along the road and needed those items, but he gave them to this Samaritan. And he gave him wine as well to disinfect his wounds. He took genuine care of this enemy of his own. And he took him to the inn as well. And he paid two denarii, which is like two full days of your wages. Two, two eight-hour workshops, 16 hours of your own work he gave. And oh, by the way, he didn't just give him that little bit. He said, whatever this man uses, when I come back, I will pay it in full. Charge it to my own account. This man needs love. He needs to be shown the love of God. Here is everything I have for this man. We see this heroism in Doss as well. He had limited resources himself. He didn't have all the bandages he needed to heal and patch up his friends. But he gave everything he had for them. He knew the law of God. It was written upon his own heart. He knew of the unfailing love of Christ and acted Christ-like. And even the Samaritan acted more like Jesus Christ, our King, than two of the most prominent 
Israel leaders. Again, if you love God, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Something the scribes, the priests, the Levites all lacked was not genuine knowledge, wasn't theological training, but it was a true love for God. They had plenty of means to help this man out. Uh, They were not poor priests or poor Levites. A portion was dedicated solely to them. They had all the means and more to provide for this man. Yet what do they do? Walked on the other side. And if we, brothers and sisters, are to be more like Christ, and we claim to love God like this lawyer claims to love God, then we will show genuine compassion for our neighbor. Genuine compassion for those who we may not get along with. Genuine compassion for those who we walk by the streets. Apart from Christ, you cannot love your neighbor. And thirdly, we're going to look at the perfect love of Christ for us. Jesus concludes this parable by asking the lawyer a fairly easy question. It's like a softball just being thrown. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor who fell among the robbers? And again, the lawyer answered the right question. He has an A plus on this exam. He knew all the answers. He says, the one who showed him mercy. But here's the thing. Jesus typically gets at the heart of the issue. Jesus says, go and do this likewise. See, the lawyer really wasn't asking the right question. He asked, who is my neighbor? It's not the question he needed to ask. What he needed to ask was, how can I be a neighbor to these people? And often we ourselves aren't asking the right questions. We're not saying to ourselves, who should I be serving? But how should I be serving my brothers and sisters, other image bearers of God? Again, there's a bit of irony in our Good Shepherd's response. The lawyer thought that by perfect obedience, he could achieve the law's demands. But up until this point, Up until this very point of this lawyer talking to Jesus, there's only one man who has been able to perfectly keep the law of God. He was staring at him in the face. Jesus Christ incarnate was right there in front of this lawyer, having perfectly obeyed all of the law's demands to complete and utter perfection. It's no wonder why the disciples asked our Lord, Who then can be saved? Jesus tells us, with man, by your own works, it's impossible. It's not possible. But with God, with Christ, it is possible. Jesus gets at the heart of the issue. The law isn't just a checklist of things that we mark off throughout our lives and saying, I got that right, I got that right. It's about the heart. It's about whether or not we truly and affectionately love our neighbor as ourselves. And apart from Christ, our heart is set towards sin and misery. 
Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses apart from Christ. Jesus himself tells us we cannot even see or perceive the kingdom of God apart from the Spirit of God. We must be granted or gifted God's Spirit to understand the law at its true and most pure sense. And it is only because Jesus Christ himself perfectly and obediently achieved all of the law's demands. What's ironic in this passage is that the Samaritan shows genuine love where we fail to show genuine love to our Savior. See, the Samaritan patched up the wounds of this beaten man, and our own sin beat our Savior. Samaritan went out of his way to heal this man. We go out of our way to sin against the holy God. Samaritan gave all he had and more to save this man. And we give all we have and more to sin against God apart from Christ. There's a lovely poem written by Jacobus Rebius, who's a Dutch poet. He wrote this poem entitled, He Bore Our Griefs. I'm going to read the last few stanzas. But the beginning of it, the first portion of it, is, is a reminder of this very fact that it was our sin, all that we have done against God, that was placed onto Christ on the cross. So at the end of the day, it wasn't Pontius Pilate who crucified Christ. It wasn't uh, the, the Jewish leaders who crucified Christ. It wasn't the Gentiles who crucified Christ. This is what this great poet says. He says, I am the one, O Lord, who brought you there. I am the heavy cross you had to bear. I am the rope that bound you to the tree, the whip, the nail, the hammer, and the spear. The blood-stained crown of thorns you had to wear. It was my sin. Alas, it was for me. Yet we have a Savior who did all of this willingly for us on our behalf. He didn't come as this beautiful king to redeem a people, but he came lowly in a manger. He suffered all the ways in which we suffer, yet he was without sin. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the worst possible kind of death, death on a cross. Yet at the same time, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form, in Christ Jesus. He is the exact representation, the imprint, the stamp of God. Jesus can tell this lawyer to show mercy because he has shown mercy to you, brothers and sisters. Where you deserve eternal damnation, he provided life everlasting. Even though we were dead, we did not want Christ, we did not want God. He demonstrated an utter, infallible love for us. This perfect, spotless lamb who deserved no death went willingly to the cross for our sins. And it's because of this perfect love that Christ has for us 
that we can go and do likewise. We can act like the Samaritan and love our neighbor as ourselves and to fulfill the law of God by loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that apart from Christ, we are nothing. Lord, we thank you for the love that Jesus has given to us and enabling us to love you, to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, alive in our hearts by your Spirit, help us to repent and believe, for there is no name other than the name of Christ by which we may be saved. Father, help us to live these truths. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to see you, O Lord, and behold your glory. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.